You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this. Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And we talked last week, and we'll we'll kind of run through real quick what we talked about last week to set the stage for how we're going to finish this up this week. Um, We said that ultimately, based on what we've already seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul wants to come back to this church to supply what is lacking in their faith. He wants to continue teaching them about what it means to follow Jesus. And he recognizes and identifies that there's some areas where they still need some growth and encouragement. Specifically in how they interact with each other sexually, is what he says here. That he feels like he's got to address this topic, this issue with them. He's also got to address um, their understanding of the end times. And and what the hope is for Jesus coming back. And so there's some specific areas specific to that church that he says, we need to look at this more in depth. We need to supply what is lacking in your faith. And we know he's already talked to them about this to some degree because he says in um, verse 6 that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So so Paul has already given some instruction to them about their need to turn from sin, most likely their sexual sin, because Jesus is coming to judge that. So Paul wants to supply what is lacking, we said, in their faith. And like I said already today, we've defined faith for this passage of Scripture here, trusting truth. Trusting in the truth that God reveals to us. And so ultimately Paul is trying to draw this church to trust God more. In his teaching about sex. And he wants to communicate that effectively to this church to help them grow. Because we've said they are surrounded. They are surrounded by a very difficult environment. A very sinful environment. An environment that um, we said is most likely worse than our environment. And we said last week, yeah, they didn't have internet. They didn't have TV. They didn't have the explicit stuff that we have today. But they also didn't have... The Christian culture helping to thwart some of that. Remember, the church has, the church is brand new here. I mean, the church is just being started. Churches are just being planted. This is probably the first church in the city of Thessalonica. So there's been no nobody's been raised in a Christian home. Nobody's been raised with Christian values like a lot of people in this area have today. So while there's a lot of explicit stuff available to us. It's tempered somewhat by the fact that our our nation was founded on Christian values. A lot of people have been raised and have been exposed to church to some degree. 
We're talking about a city that had no Christian influence. So Paul feels a, an intense amount of pressure to, to teach them and to educate them and to instruct them about this topic and what it has to do with God's word. We said that it's preventative teaching. But in 1 Corinthians 5, he has to address the fact that a man is, is in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, Paul's just like, I can't believe this is going on. Like, even, even the lost world recognizes that this is inappropriate. But he doesn't, he doesn't identify a specific situation here. So it's not that this church had some type of gross sin going on in their church culture. He's doing what we would call preventative teaching. He's instructing them about this so he doesn't have to address a situation like this. He wants them to know what God's will is for them sexually so that he doesn't have to address an issue like this in the future. Preventative teaching. And I love the, the emphasis that Paul puts here in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. But that's Paul's goal. He wants to instruct them about how to please God. And, and what we see from sexual immorality, sexual immorality is motivated by pleasing self, not pleasing God. So we've got a contrast here. Paul says, I want to teach you how to please God. And in order to please God, it means stop pleasing yourself. Stop living in such a way to bring satisfaction to yourself. Instead, have the perspective of wanting to please God. He tells them to be obedient in this more and more, and it goes back to what we've already said about sanctification. That we, we are faithful, but we've not arrived. He says, we've instructed how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing. He, he affirms them. He says, you're doing this. And, and I commend you for doing this. But I want you to do it more. I want you to go further with your faithfulness to God. I want you to go further in your obedience to God. And so we've, we've, we've seen sanctification in the past couple of weeks as our growth in obedience to Christ, something that continues until the day we die or Jesus comes back, that we're never satisfied with where we're at spiritually. We look at some ways that, um, some things that society has to say about sex as we try to understand God's will for us. Um, we define uh, society's definition of sex is that it's any consensual sex is okay. No moral restrictions should be placed on it. Sex is for fun and pleasure. Enjoy it with anyone, anytime. Instant gratification is better than delayed satisfaction. Sexual satisfaction is the most important factor to a good marriage. We said that God calls us to something drastically different. When God instructs us about sex in his word, he says to enjoy sex with a Christian spouse Regularly or remain single and serve God unhindered. First Corinthians seven, Paul says, I, I would love it if you would stay single. Because when you marry and have a have a family, it, it, it does bring um, restrictions on your time, restrictions on your resources. There are things that you have to tend to that a single person doesn't have to. Paul says, I think it would be great if you could stay single. I think it would be uh, uh, a way to further the kingdom greatly for you to have no other responsibilities except to pursue Christ and to pursue spreading that message. But, he says, if you recognize that the desires that you have, the sexual God-given desires that you have, um, are something that, that you want to see fulfilled. That you're not, you're not in a place where you feel like you can put those on the back burner and go straight ahead. I'm just going to be single for the rest of my life. And he says you need to pursue a God-honoring marriage. A heterosexual consistent, forever-type marriage with somebody. And that's the instruction that he gives to 
the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. Sexual immorality we defined last week as any sexual activity outside the bonds of heterosexual, God-honoring marriage. And we listed some things off last week that Scripture tells us that we cannot engage in as a Christian. Fornication, sex before marriage. That God has called us to remain pure and holy until the day that we're married so that we can enjoy that relationship the way that He's designed it. We talked about lust and pornography. That to even think about someone in an in a inappropriate uh, sexual way is, is being guilty of adultery. So we talked about the dangers and the, the instruction that God gives us about lust and pornography. Adultery, sex outside of marriage. Someone who is married in a covenant relationship with, with a man or woman who steps out of that relationship. God says that we cannot engage in it as a Christian. We talked about improper divorce. That if a man and a woman were to separate for any other reason besides sexual immorality... Any other reason that it would become adultery for that person to remarry somebody. In Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32. We talked about homosexuality. We talked about being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That there's clear instructions from scripture. That we have a responsibility to pursue a lifelong relationship with someone who loves Jesus like we do. And we talked about some of the reasons that these instructions are good. That God doesn't just give us a list of do's and don'ts about sex and says, go follow this. That we can see God's goodness and why he draws us away from these type of activities. And we highlighted some of those last week. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to last week's sermon. To see some of the ways that God is good when he calls us away from those type of relationships. We listed three reasons for why we should embrace God's will for sex last week. Number one, God's purpose. God's purpose. That God has designed it for us to be holy. That when he called us into salvation, he didn't simply just save us from hell. He saved us for a purpose of making us holy, for making us zealous or passionate for good works. That God's purpose for salvation was not just to simply get us out of hell, but to make us holy, to make us like Christ. So the reason that we should embrace this teaching is because this is why God saved us. He saved us to be holy. Secondly, we looked at God's vengeance last week in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We highlighted some passages of scripture that basically um, reveal to us that sexually immoral people do not go to heaven. Sexual immorality is listed in, in lists of things that if people are engaged in this, they do not go to heaven. Now we talked about how God offers forgiveness and, and reconciliation when we, when we slip and fall and, and we give in to temptation like that. But that ultimately we need to recognize people who are um, defined by their sexual immorality. Someone who, who consistently, habitually chooses to be in a relationship that is not God honoring. That defies God's commands. That it, it, it shows that that person is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We looked very uh, in detail at some passages of scripture last week about that. Um, not to say that there aren't other things. I mean, it talks about greed and, and, and liars don't inherit the kingdom of God as well. So there, there are uh, descriptions about habitual sins that if we are known for these things, we have no right to claim assurance about our salvation. But that is not to say that, that Christians don't engage in those type of things as well at times. Um, and we're thankful that the Holy Spirit draws us out of those things and brings conviction into our life so that we can confess those things. But we also said that that shouldn't provide 
uh, comfort to us to engage in these activities. It's not that, hey, I'm a Christian, uh, God offers forgiveness, so I can do this, and then confess it when I'm done and be fine. That Galatians, um, Galatians 5 uh, talks about, uh, or Galatians 6, sorry, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 talks about that we will reap what we sow. So that even for a Christian, uh, we can fall into temptation, we can believe the lies of the world, we can doubt God's goodness, we can engage in some type of activity like that. We can come back to God, we can express con, uh, conviction because of the Holy Spirit, we can receive forgiveness, but it doesn't exempt us from reaping what we sow. That there's still heartache and consequences that come from sin, specifically in this context, sexual immorality. And we highlighted the story of David last week. That David cries out to God in Psalm 52 and confesses his sin with Bathsheba. Confesses his sin against God and God alone that he sinned against. But we also said that he reaped what he sowed. That, that God forgave him. That, that God and his relationship were restored to where it needed to be. But he also experienced um, devastating consequences to his family for the rest of his life. Um, so as a Christian, we can't find full comfort in knowing that, hey, if I do this, God will forgive us. Oh, God will forgive me because we'll still reap the consequences of our sin. And then lastly, we said that we should embrace God's will for sex because of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And I, and I told you last week that ultimately we've been given the Holy One to bring us to holiness. But it does no good for a Christian to say, I can't beat this sin. I can't overcome this temptation. Because what you're saying is that the Holy Spirit is not powerful enough to do it in you. Whereas 1 John says that either, or Jesus said that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is going to come to bring conviction to our sin. We're told that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So the Holy Spirit living inside of us gives us all the power that we need to overcome sin. And 1 Corinthians even tells us that there's no temptation that we have to give in to. That God always makes a way for us to escape. So the Holy One, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Another reason for us to embrace God's teaching about sex. And that's where we got thoughts last week. And we had highlighted those things from um, this passage of Scripture. And um, I want us to transition now into seeing how we do this. How do we fight sexual immorality? How do we fight for sexual purity in our life? The first thing in your notes, how can I please God with sex? Number one is to abstain. To abstain. If you want to put out beside that sexual immorality to clarify exactly what we're abstaining from, then I would encourage you to do so. Paul says that this is the will of God for your life. To abstain from sexual immorality. I put in my notes, we must flee from any opportunity to think or to act unholy through sex. In Ephesians 5.3. We get some further instruction about fleeing opportunities for this. Ephesians 5.3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul's saying, if someone were to accuse you of some type of sexual immorality... It should make absolute no sense for people that were to hear that accusation. That there shouldn't even be a hint of this being possible. That your integrity, if you're a man, your integrity with other women should be so strong, should be so strong that, that an accusation about sexual immorality just wouldn't make sense. It would just be, it would be foreign to everybody else hearing that accusation. That if you're a woman, that your integrity with other men, married or not married, 
That your integrity should be so strong, should be so clear, should be so pure, that to hear of sexual immorality being named among that person should be so foreign to other people here. That communicates to me that we're fleeing opportunities for it. We are removing any type of opportunity in our life that would cause us to stumble or to fall. That we're so intentional about removing ourselves from temptation that we're demonstrating to others, you can't even name this among me. That I want no part of this. That I am pursuing holiness and purity. 1 Corinthians 6, 15-20 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? With whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Maybe the most familiar example to us in scripture. Is Joseph fleeing from the temptation of Potiphar's wife. That he, that, he, that he gets himself out of there. That he doesn't entertain that conversation any further. That he runs. That he flees from that temptation. And we have the responsibility to flee any opportunity. And sometimes that causes us to have to, to take drastic measures in our life. Um, in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. These are drastic measures. I mean, this is... This is drastic stuff that Jesus is saying. That if you can't control your eyes, then tear them out. If you can't control your hands, cut them off. Which means that uh, if, if a computer is an issue in our life to our sexual morality, if, if our sexual purity is hindered by the computer, then we have to take drastic measures to remove that hindrance. If that means removing the computer completely from our house, then that's what it means. If it means moving it into a, an area of the house where you can't use it without other people seeing you use it, then that's what it means. Taking drastic measures to make sure that this does not become a hindrance. Does not become a hindrance in our life. Jesus said, sexual purity, purity towards me, holiness towards me. If, if you've got any type of activity in your life that is hindering this, cut it out. Get rid of it. You've got to pursue this. So we must flee from opportunity to think or act unholy through sex. Secondly, we must kill our immoral sexual desires by preaching to ourselves. You have to preach to yourself that you're dead to this type of activity. In Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul's writing here in Colossians, and he's admitting the fact that, hey, just because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you doesn't mean that this stuff just automatically goes away. It's not that we get saved and all of our sinful desires are just magically gone. This is something that's supposed to be happening on a regular, daily basis. We are fighting for holiness in our life. 
Paul says, put to death these things. So we identify sinful desires that are still inside of us, and we do everything we can to starve those desires. We don't feed it, we kill it. We don't feed those desires, we kill it. We recognize things that make us more susceptible to temptation sexually, and we get it out. And that's going to be different for each one of you. Like, but it's hard to give applications specifically for that because that's going to look different in each one of our lives. One example that I shared with some of the guys on, um, in our discipleship time. I said that, that honestly, I'm so thankful that the women that I work with at the school where I teach are, are, are all older and are not um, a temptation for me. The, the, the teachers that I interact with on a regular basis, uh, the teacher that I teach right next to, there's no temptation there. And I'm so thankful that God has, has done that for me. But I also confess to the guys, I said, um, if next year, you know, they hire some young blonde right out of college to work next to me and I'm having to interact with her regularly, the moment that I identify that being a problem, I'm going to have to take drastic steps to make sure that goes no further. And I said, even if it means going to the principal and saying, hey, we're going to have to move rooms here. Like, like, I've got to protect me, and I've got to protect my relationship with Lauren. We're going to have to move rooms. Like, I, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll move everybody's stuff if I need to. But I cannot put myself here for a hundred and whatever amount of days that we're at school and put myself in a situation where this is going to be a struggle. That would be something that would be specific to me. And I want Lauren to know that I value our relationship enough that I would, that I would do that if necessary. The awkwardness of having to go and, and talk to a principal about that. I've got to flee from it. If my flesh is going to take opportunity to engage in a relationship like that with a woman that I work with, I've got to get away from it. So you've got to identify what in your life could potentially feed your sinful desire in the area of sexual immorality and get it out. Cut it out. Kill it. Don't feed it. Kill it. Starve it. And then lastly, and this is specific to our church, as we try to abstain from sexual immorality, we must remove anyone from the church who refuses to obey to protect ourselves. I think the New Testament is very clear that in the context of this church family, that if we have individual members who want to engage in habitual sexual immorality, and we confront them about that, we, we draw them to repentance, um, if they refuse that, they refuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament teaches we have to remove them from our presence. Why? Because we've got younger believers here that we do not want to communicate to them that this is okay. See, if we're not careful, we can let sexually immoral people stay in the confines of the church and we're, we're teaching people that, yeah, this is wrong, but God forgives, so we're okay with it. And, and now what happens to young believer who just came to our church who's trying to fight this, what motivation is there to fight it when they know so-and-so in our church does this regularly? And, and we're hanging out with them and loving on them and fellowshipping with them, and there's no issues. Look what it says in um, 1 Corinthians 5. And this is not popular teaching. This, this is not popular, and you don't see this happen a lot in church. But in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, this is in the same context of uh, the guy who is sleeping with his stepmom. And, and, and Paul's saying, you've got to remove this. Why? Because in uh, verse 6, your boasting is not good. And some have speculated that the boasting was about how they were tolerant of people. 
Hey, we, we love people at this church. We, we don't want to impose. We, we want to we love people to Christ. He says, you're boasting in it, and it's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you were to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I think he distinguishes between saved and lost. And I think that's an important distinction. If we were to, um, if we were to have two people come to our church, let's say we had a, a homosexual couple come into our church. Say, so, hey, we heard about Sovereign Hope. Um, we're, we're interested in learning more about God and, and um, the gospel. And we, we'd like to, to um, attend you know, the next couple of weeks. Great. We'd love to have you here. We'd love to communicate the gospel to you. But if we have... Toby and Jordan, for example, who have been dating for a while. Let's say Toby comes to me and says, hey, um, Jordan's having a hard time finding a roommate. I can't find a roommate. We both go to school in Noonan, so we're going to move in together and start living together. No, no, you're not. You can't do that. Both of you profess to follow Christ. Hey, both of you profess to love Christ. You profess that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. We can't have that. We can't have you guys being sexually involved with each other, living together, claiming to be Christians and be a part of this church. Why? Because what does that do to someone like Jesse and Cortland who are fighting to be sexually pure until um, God confirms to them that they're supposed to get married? If we allow two people to, to, be, to be living together, involved sexually, what does that do to other couples in our church who are trying to fight for sexual purity? We can't have that. And Paul says you can't associate with this in your church. You can't tolerate this in your church because it leavens the whole lump. It allows their sin to affect everybody else. That's different than allowing unsaved people to come in in their sin and us preach gospel to them over and over and over again. Because when that happens, Toby and Jordan can recognize, hey, the reason they're allowed to be here is because they don't claim to be Christians. We're not expecting them to be holy we are not imposing Christian obligations on them because they don't have the Holy One living inside of them. That's a, that's a big difference, and it, it needs to be understood by our church. When we ask you to become a covenant member here, you are saying to us, help me fight sin even when I'm blinded to it. You know, Toby comes and says, I want to be a member here. He's saying, you come preach truth to me if I ever want to move in with Jordan before we're married. When I'm so blinded to it and I'm so confused by my feelings and my passions and my desires, you preach truth to me when I'm blinded to it. Paul says you abstain from sexual immorality, you protect each other from it by removing people who claim to be Christians who are involved in it. Do not leaven the whole lump. Abstain from sexual immorality. You love people enough to hate their sin for them. Sometimes this teaching, like I said, it gets uh, to become unpopular because it doesn't sound very loving. How can kicking people out of the church be loving? Paul actually communicates this is the loving thing to do. And here's the kicker is it works. 
Like this type of activity works. Look in 2 Corinthians 2.7. You see, here's my fear is that, you know, if we had a situation like this in, in our church, and, and, and thankfully we don't right now, my fear would be, man, if we kick these guys out of the church, then they're, they're not hearing the word like they need to. Like they need to be here to hear the word. And if we remove them, that's not very loving, that's not protecting them, but, but Paul actually says you do this to save their soul. In 2 Corinthians 2, 7, or verse 5, it says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to be put, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, there's debate as to whether or not this is the same guy in 1 Corinthians 5 that's been removed, or if this is a different situation. But what we have here is someone who has been disciplined by the church, removed, because he failed to confess his sin and turn from it. Now, he's, he's experienced sorrow. God has worked in the whole, with the Holy Spirit through him. Outside the church, this guy's wanting to come back. Paul says, you welcome him back now. Like, the discipline worked. He realized that he needs to be following Christ in this area, whatever area it is right here. And he's wanting to come back, and Paul says, you welcome him back into the church. That's the encouragement, is that this works. That the church discipline that is described in the book of Matthew, it works. That we draw people to be convicted of their sin, to repent of their sin, and when they don't, if necessary, we remove them from our fellowship. Why? The big purpose, so that they will come back to our fellowship. So that they will turn from their sin and come back. Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. We kill it in our own life, and we remove it when it's necessary from our church to protect ourselves. Number two, possess your vessel. Possess your vessel. Your vessel. For you know the instructions we gave you through our Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Does anybody have a different translation that does not say uh, control his own body? Anybody got a different translation, not the ESV, that says something different? So that each of you knows how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. What uh, version is that one? Uh, this is the um, uh, CSB. Okay. That's actually the, the best translation from the Greek to this. Sometimes what happens in translation is the people who are translating it do some of the work for you, and they translate it the way they think the author meant it. And this doesn't happen often in the ESV, but I think it happens here. Um, instead of saying control or possess your own vessel, um, it says control his own body. Now, I'm going to give you some of the um, translation options for what this phrase means. Before we get to that, though, this word know. Know how to do this. This word know means to have the skill necessary to accomplish a desired goal. To have the skill necessary to accomplish the desired goal. So you know how to do this. Know how to do what I'm about to instruct you about. Now, here's the translation options. Uh, some people believe that it should be translated control or possess your own body. Okay, that's what we have here in the ESV. Support for that would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. 
I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So we see some evidence here of this type of teaching somewhere else. That we have a responsibility to control our bodies. Here's what happens when we step out into sin in the garden. Our, our desires are now all out of whack. Okay? God created us with a desire to enjoy things, to, to enjoy sex, to enjoy food, to enjoy the things of this world. But those desires are not now all out of whack because of our sin. That we've got people who can't control their desire for food, and so it becomes a source of excess for them. People who can't enjoy the good gift of sex, it's an excess thing for them now. People who can't enjoy material things that are gifts from God, they now worship the gift instead of the giver. All out of whack. And Paul says, as a Christian, I'm controlling my body. I work hard like an athlete to discipline my body to keep it under control. So we see that teaching elsewhere in Scripture. Um, in 1 Samuel 21, this is the second option. 1 Samuel 21, 5-6. And David, this is David coming to the priest. Um, it's during wartime. He needs food for his um, soldiers. Um, David answered the priest. The, the priest says, I can't give you, I don't have any common bread. All I've got is holy bread. And only people that are unclean can eat the holy bread. So the priest is kind of forcing him, have your guys been sexually involved? And, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is even when it as an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. Not to be awkward here, what he's saying is, is that their uh, their sexual organs are holy. Okay? This is what's going on in First Samuel. Some people want to interpret here in First Thessalonians that it's not just control your body, it's control specific parts of your body. Okay? I don't think there's a big difference there. I don't know why we have to differentiate between exactly what Paul means. Control your body. Control all aspects of your body. But there's a third interpretation that's way different. Um, let me get back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I don't know if there's any versions that actually translate it this way, but some people believe that the translation should be acquire a wife or a marriage partner that to abstain from sexual immorality he is saying know how to acquire or to get a marriage partner that's how you control your body in holiness and honor now do we see that teaching elsewhere in scripture yeah i think we do in first corinthians 7 we looked at this passage last week but in first corinthians 7 we're told um now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. And we talked about the fact that God has given us right desires, and he's given us the right way to fulfill those desires. He says, if you can't control yourself for the, for the long haul sexually, then you need to pursue getting married. And when, back when we were at Mount Gilead with the youth, we talked about this in relation to how you guys date, that if you're... If you're under the belief that you're supposed to be married, that you want to be married, that you have that desire, then do the things that it takes to get married. Like, get a job. Figure out what you're doing with your life. 
Start putting away money so you can take care of someone. Start figuring these things out so that you can work towards that. Don't just wait and say, I want to be married and, and, and not be able to get married when the time comes. Be mature and intentional about doing this. So we see this teaching also, also in Scripture. Uh, so it could mean control your own body. could mean control or possess certain aspects of your body. Or it could mean acquire a marriage partner. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. There was a lot of commentary pages devoted to figuring out which one of these it is. For me, I look at all of it and say, yeah, do all those things. Control your body. Control all aspects of your body. And if you're a, a single person who wants to be married, then do what it takes to, to get married. Do what it takes to pursue a marriage. Make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row. Make sure that there are no hindrances to you getting married when you want to get married. You find someone who loves Jesus and marry them. And commit to serving them and loving them for the rest of your life. So Paul says, do this. You abstain from sexual immorality. And one of the ways that we can do that is to possess our vessel. To possess our vessel. To control our bodies. And I think also to pursue marriage. For those of us that, that desire that, who want to pursue that, to do it in a holy way. He says also... Each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The way a Christian controls his body is that we are controlled by the spirit, not our physical desires. In Galatians 5.16, we're talk, we're, it's talking there about walking in the spirit. And what do we do if we walk in the spirit? We do not gratify the desires of our flesh. These words for what the Gentiles do... Um, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. The word passion here means uncontrollable desire. The word lust means out of control craving. That kind of reiterates what I just said. As sinful people, our desires are all out of whack. And, and, and Paul says, a lost person doesn't know what to do with these desires. I mean, he's passionate. He's lustful. He has uncontrollable desires. These out-of-control cravings. He says, you be controlled by the Spirit. You control your body. You possess your body in a way that's holy and honorable. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Moving on to number three. He says, the Gentiles do this. Why? Because they do not know God. So number three, act like you know God. Act like you know God. Abstain from sexual immorality. Possess your vessel. Act like you know God. He says sexual immorality is what you expect for the lost. They don't know God. Some verses you might want to jot down to look at on your own. Romans 1, 24-27. Romans 1, 24-27. This is where uh, Paul's describing kind of the state of mankind. He says mankind has rejected the knowledge that they have about God. The knowledge that God reveals through his creation, man rejects it, and what's the consequence? He gives them over to their desires. All kinds of sexual immorality gets produced because man has rejected God. This is what you expect from the lost. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Ephesians 5, 3-6. Some other verses that you can look at. Sexual immorality is what you expect for the lost. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Ephesians 5, 3-6. So this is what the lost people do. Lost people are controlled by their uncontrollable desires. Okay, That's what controls them. The fact that they're out of control. 
The opposite is to be true of a Christian. Now I want to talk just, just for a minute here. He says the reason they do this is because they don't know God. Which means if we know God, the opposite happens. We're not controlled by these desires. Now, we've kind of talked recently about motivation for following God. I put in my notes, we aren't called to sexual morality for legalistic reasons or to fulfill the debtor's ethic. Now, let's talk about those two wrong motivations. The legalistic mindset. What does it mean to, to want to obey God for legalistic reasons? What does that look like? What's the motivation there? Anybody? Okay, it's, it's deed motivated for what purpose? Okay, what ultimately are we trying to gain by this obedience then? Favor. We're, we're trying to make ourselves look good to earn God's favor. It's a wrong mindset for us to look at this and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be sexually pure so that God will love me more. For well, we're talking about how um, the Gentiles live this way because they don't know God in verse five, and then this is going back to some things that we've talked about recently about the legalistic mindset is that we try to do things to earn God's favor. So I don't try to be sexually pure. I don't try to be faithful to Lauren and, and not look lustfully at other women so that God will love me more. Okay, I, I, that's not my motivation. What's the debtor's ethic motivation? What does that mean? Some of you are familiar with that. What's a good understanding? What does it mean to, to try to obey God from a debtor's ethic perspective? It's almost like the idea that you're obedient Right. It's 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 focusing on what God has done for us and saying, Wow, God has done so much for me, I owe him. God has done so much for, for me, he has the right to tell me to be sexually moral. So I'm going to do it to kind of pay him back. Um, I owe him a big one on this one. You know, like he, he died on the cross for me. He, he saved me from hell. Um, he, he's adopted me into his family. How can I not obey him? Like, I, I, I owe it to him. That's a debtor's ethic. That's an inappropriate motivation for obedience here as well. Okay, so we don't strive for sexual purity to earn God's favor. Love me more because I'm being obedient. We don't do this to try to pay God back. It's not that we owe God because of what he's done for us, because we could never pay him back. It's not that we uh, it's not that we don't owe God in the sense that we should just be fine with the fact that he did all these things. It's that we could never pay him back. Like, how petty of a thing to think that if I can be sexually pure to Lauren for a few years of, of, of this, you know, eternal perspective, if I can be pure with her for a few years, that that in some way pays back for for God's eternal wrath being satisfied on the cross. I mean, what a what a silly perspective to think that we could ever pay back God for what he's done. Okay, so debtors have the core motivation. So why be moral? What does God get? Think about and this is something that I've been wrestling with. What does God get out of it if I'm being sexually pure? Because see, that's usually how we think about serving one, one another. Like, if I'm sitting on the couch watching the Braves game or... I really don't sit on the couch. I lay on the floor whenever we're watching the Braves game. So I'm laying on the floor and I'm thinking, I'm thirsty. Lauren, um, would you mind getting up and getting me something to drink? What's my motivation for asking her to do that thing? I want her to serve me. I want her to, to do something for me. I'm getting something out of that, right? Like I'm asking her to do something and it furthers me. And I think it's in 
incorrect for us to think that God is actually asking us to be sexually pure because he gets anything out of it. Like, God's not getting anything out of us being sexually pure. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. He doesn't need us to share the gospel. Like, we, we, God is, is described in Scripture as an as a all-sufficient being that doesn't need man. So why be more? Why, why, why does God want us to do this? I put in my notes here, God's call to obedience flows out of knowing what he has done for us. Now, the debtor's ethic is close to this, okay? We're obedient because we know what God has done for us. But I'm not doing it to pay him back. I'm recognizing that everything that he has done for us communicates to me that he's for me. That he's for me. He is on my side. He is working for my good. Okay, so... I think about what God has done for me. I can read the Old Testament and see what God has done for his people. And then I'm motivated to be obedient. Not to pay him back, not to earn his favor, but because I recognize everything that God has done has been for my good. So now that he's asking me to be sexually pure, that has to be for my good as well. You see how that motivation comes from knowing his past faithfulness to his people. He's now asking me to be obedient, to trust in his goodness, not to pay him back, not to earn favor, but to trust in the fact that look at my history. Everything that I've done for you is good. Now I'm asking you to be sexually pure. Don't doubt my goodness in this either. And we see this whenever he, we see this in several places when he gives instruction or commands to his people. Look in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. What's the major teaching that's about to happen here in Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. He's about to give explicit commands to his people. Do these things. Don't do these things. And look how he starts it off. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't have any other gods before me. He's not saying, he's not reminding them about Egypt and saying, remember, I already did this for you, so you own me, so no gods before me. Don't use my name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day. He's not using it as a motivation to be paid back. He's saying, don't forget the same God that rescued you out of Egypt. The same God that rescued you out of hundreds of years of slavery. Think about how I've been working for your good. Think about how everything in my plan has been for your good. Now listen to my instruction as you get ready to go into the Holy Land. Don't have any other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your parents. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. He is wanting them to remember his goodness so it will motivate their obedience out of trust in his goodness. Not to pay him back, not to earn his favor, but for it to click in their heads. This has to be good because he's always good. Everything he's done for us is good. Now he's asking us to do things. It must be for our good. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's a travesty to start in Romans chapter 12 without looking at Romans 1 through 11, because you miss why we should be doing this. You don't just start in Romans 12 and say, the all creator of the universe is demanding that we do things for him. No, you read Romans 1 through 11 and realize that the creator of the universe has done everything for us. He has earned our salvation for us when we were lost and had nothing to offer. Romans 1, 2, and 3. Dead in our sins, corrupt, nasty, gross, no good thing to offer him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness was revealed for us. His perfect righteousness was earned for us through the love of Jesus Christ. Through the work and accomplishment of Jesus Christ. And so he builds this whole argument about how God is good. Romans 8, everything's working for the good of God's people. Then Romans 12, here's some things that you can do knowing that God is asking you from a good mindset. He is asking you to do these things. He's telling you to do these things because he's good and he wants your good. He is for you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 have already described to us every spiritual blessing has been given to us. You read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and you realize the all-sufficient creator of the universe has been doing good for his people. Now live for him. Do the things that he wants you to do because they're good. You're not paying him back. You're not earning his favor. You are responding to good in your life. God's, this is a quote from uh, Sam Storms, who's a pastor and, and friend of John Piper. It says, God's commandments concerning sex are not for the purpose of robbing people of joy but rather protecting them that they might not lose their joy. Listen to that again. God's commandments concerning sex are not for the purpose of robbing people of joy, but rather protecting them that they may not lose their joy. He goes on to describe it as God's instructions about sex is not a prison. It's a garden. It's not a prison where you're confined to have to do it this way. It's a garden that he sets up a a bridge of protection, a fence of protection, and says enjoy it without all the harm that's outside the garden. Don't let anything come in and destroy this good environment. And we see that happen in in the Garden of Eden, where Satan comes in and says, God wants to rob you of your joy. God God wants to rob you of your happiness. God's trying to put you in a prison and tell you how to do things. Instead of letting you be free and do things the way you want to do. And they bought into the lie that they were in a prison and failed to realize and look around. No, we're in a garden. A good garden from a good creator who wants good for our life. Who has told us, don't eat of this tree because you will die. We need to understand that God's instructions about sex are not to confine us, not to rob us of our joy. That God is actually trying to protect our joy. He wants our joy in the area of sex and in the area of everything else in creation. And he gives us instructions about how to enjoy the creation that he created. I put in um, the city today, 
The moment God's goodness is doubted is when the appeal of sin becomes most alluring. The moment that we doubt God's goodness is when sin becomes most attractive. That's why the tree became attractive to Adam and Eve. They doubted the goodness. When we doubt God's goodness, that's when any form of sexual immorality becomes tempting. Because we begin to think, God's not for my good. God's trying to hold me back. God's trying to hinder my joy. And then lastly, number four, don't take advantage of others. Abstain from sexual immorality. Possess your vessel. Control your body. Get married. Whichever one that means. Do both. Number three, act like you know God. Act like you have been shown the goodness of God. And if you have a deficiency in understanding God's goodness, then you need to increase that. You need to be in the Word. You need to, like we did this morning, talking about God's goodness with others, to fill that understanding up that God is good so that when we read in Scripture commands, we see them from that perspective. And then number four, don't take advantage of others. He says, uh, verse 6 in First Thessalonians 4, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand, solemnly warn you. Don't transgress and wrong your brother. Sexual immorality, this is what sexual immorality says. It says, I want you for sex, but I don't want you for a covenant marriage. I just want to use you. That's ultimately what sexual immorality is. Whether it's before marriage, fornication, you're saying, I want the sex, but I don't want the marriage part yet. I don't want to fully commit to you. I don't want to take care of you. Or from the girl's perspective, I don't want to submit to you and follow you. I just want to use you. Paul says, do not transgress and wrong your brother that way. You do not use other people for this. A reason for that, as we see in the New Testament, our bodies don't belong to us. So when we engage in sexual immorality, we are using somebody's body that really doesn't belong to them. We're told in Scripture that the body belongs to, um, to either God or to that person's spouse. You can write down 1 Corinthians 7, 4 through 5. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We're given both perspectives there. You are not your own, you've been bought with a price. Your body is the Holy Spirit's temple. Then we're also told when we're given instructions about marriage that the husband doesn't own his body, the wife doesn't own her body. They're given to each other in the covenant marriage. So when we step out of God's instruction about sex, we're using somebody's body that doesn't belong to them. We're abusing and transgressing and taking things that do not belong to us either. We said this last week, God gave sex for marriage to picture his relationship to the church. When we have sex outside of marriage, it's taking something not ours. It's robbing other people by depriving them of the opportunity to enjoy sex as the Creator intended. Ephesians 5, 31-32 says that, that God wanted to illustrate to us His relationship to the church, and so He created sex for man and woman. He didn't use something that was already created. He created sex to be an illustration for the love that He has for the church. And so when we don't uh, engage in that the way that God's instructed us, we mess up the illustration that he created. We show lack of faithfulness, lack of love. We show selfishness and sexual immorality, which is not the relationship between Christ and the church. Don't take advantage of others. Some application and then we're finished. First thing, determine how you will be sexually glorifying to God. Either with abstinence or marriage. 
For some of us, we've already made that choice. We've chosen to be married. So we now have to fight for sexual purity in our marriage. Some of you haven't made that choice, and there's a choice that needs to be made. Am I going to pursue abstinence? Am I going to pursue singleness for the rest of my life? And like we said last week, um, singleness increases your responsibility with your time and with your resources because you have more of it than a married couple. Are you going to embrace that responsibility and say, I'm going to serve God singly and do far greater things and, and more quantitative things because of my extra time and resources? Or am I going to pursue marriage? And by pursuing marriage, not just sit back and say, well, when it happens, it happens. But be intentional to set yourself up for a good marriage. Eliminating debt. Deciding what you want to do with your life. Spending time with married couples and learning from them about what is working and not working in their marriage and how you can learn from their relationship. Being proactive to pursue marriage. Determine how you're going to glorify God sexually. Secondly, sexual immorality is ultimately failing to trust that God will provide good for you. Learn more about God's goodness. Remember, we can't be content with how we understand God's goodness because he says, be obedient more and more and more and more. The way we become more obedient in the area of sexual morality is to trust in God's goodness more, which means we need to expose ourselves more and more to how God has revealed his goodness. Next, don't ignore this teaching because you don't struggle. Don't just discount this and say, eh, it's not for me. I'm not struggling in this area. Because Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3 gives us some instruction about that. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews says we need to be in close community with each other so that we never become blinded to sin. You may not be struggling with it now, but recognize that you could struggle with it in the future. And then lastly, present this message confidently as truth from God. We've already said in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says if you disregard this, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul says, this is tough teaching. Like In that context, it would have been very hard for them to turn their back on sexual immorality. That's all they've known. That's all their friends and family are engaged in. He says, if you reject this, don't reject this because you think it's my opinion or it's my suggestion for how to do things. He says, to disregard this teaching is to disregard God. Jesus gave the same encouragement in Luke 10, 16. He told his disciples, don't be discouraged when you're rejected. Know that they are rejecting me, not you. So we can boldly proclaim this message of sexual purity to our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we see each other struggling, potentially falling into sin, being blinded by this sin, we can present this message of sexual purity confidently, knowing that we're not trying to present our opinion. But we're presenting the truth that God has communicated in his word. I'm going to pray for us. And um, Titan's going to come and, and, and play. We're just going to give you a chance to, to digest this for a few minutes. A lot of times we pray, we're done, we start tearing down. And, and we don't give the Holy Spirit a, uh, an opportunity right now 
to kind of work on us a little bit with this. And so we've, we've come to the end of this teaching, and, and I want to give you just a minute to, to not worry about the kids, not worry about lunch plans, not worry about setting up tables and tearing down stuff, but to just think and to pray and to reflect, to look over these notes, to look over the application, and give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to convict and encourage where it's needed. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the goodness of it. God, I pray that in the next few minutes you would just give us an opportunity to reflect, to concentrate, and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us where it's needed. God, that we would be doers and not hearers of this word. As we prepare to leave today, I want to encourage you to continue dwelling on what we've learned from the word today. One way that you can do that is to engage on the city with your C group. We'll have questions and thoughts posted throughout this week for you to interact with each other. Uh, because we want to be faithful to do what the Word tells us to do and not simply hear it. And um, sometimes that means um, doing things for ourselves in our own life, things that we need to apply. Sometimes it means encouraging others in these areas. And um, So I encourage you to engage on the city this week. Um, about today's sermon so that you can ask questions and dialogue about this and encourage uh, one another. I want to also encourage you that if you would like to, uh, to speak with either me or Tyson after the service, we'll be available. If there's questions that you have about today, things that you would like to know more about, um, or if you've never received Christ as your Savior and you would like to learn more about the gospel and what it means to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then I encourage you to speak with either me or Tyson afterwards. We'd love to sit down and talk with you more about that. Or to just simply um, hash out more about what we've learned today um, through this sermon, through the Word, that we would um, be able to clarify any questions that you have or um, any thoughts or perspectives that you have about applying it in your own life. Um, I'm going to close this out in prayer today. I want to encourage you as well that um, you do have the opportunity to give this morning if you'd like to give in the the box in the back um, so that we can use our resources together to further the kingdom throughout this week. Let's pray. God, we do praise you and thank you that you have faithfully communicated your goodness to us. God, we want to be aware like the psalmists were aware when they reflected on your goodness. We want to be in tune with your past faithfulness to your people. God, we want want to recognize that you are for us and not against us. That you haven't just come up with a petty list of rules for us to to obey, to humor you, or to to serve you in a a way that that you need anything. God, we don't want to do what you called us to do to try to earn your favor or to try to pay you back. God, I pray that we would recognize that you have instructed us about the way life works. And about the way you want to live, want us to live life out of a motivation of goodness for us. God, I pray that you you would help us to, to know and understand and rest in the fact that you are for our joy. And that ultimately you are the object of our joy. That you give us things to simply point us back to you. That you have not given us sex or any other gift. 
for our joy. You have given us those things to point us back to you. You are the ultimate object of our joy. God, I pray that we would see that and rest in that. It would radically shape the way that we live our life this week and the decisions that we make daily. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.